0: Visit ElkinsConsulting.com and schedule a one-time 90-minute StrengthsFinder session. I could not be happier today to be sitting here with my friend Leslie Rasmussen, author of After Happily Ever After, which is a book that um, definitely resonated with me, and we were introduced by the magical Meg Nossero. So thank you so much for joining me today, Leslie.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is so nice. I
0: appreciate it. Yes, absolutely. Well, I got your book shortly after I bought um, the other book that I interviewed the author recently, which is The Sound of Wings, yes. um, uh, Suzanne Simonetti, mm-hmm. which was also a, a weekend read. And she's my also, good friend.
1: So. <laughs> oh, <and> she's
0: <laughs> wonderful. And, and that, yes, and that episode um, is coming out uh, next. Oh, it came out two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Yes. And it was just... Oh my gosh. Yes. Meg is the introducer of beautiful people. And (laughs) yes, exactly. And I mean, beautiful all the way through and through. So um, let's just start with the question that I always ask my guests, which is I'd love for you to share something with us about yourself that most people don't know something that isn't in your bio. It's not on your LinkedIn profile And I do this because I love for our listeners to have some sense of who we are at a deeper level than where we can go just by asking questions. So I totally get that.
1: Um, Something that people don't know about me is when I, between the ages of 18 and 21, I was an actress um, and I was in some commercials. I was actually in a movie with Mary Tyler Moore And I didn't have a big part, but I was in with Mary Tyler Moore, Sam Waterston, Ted Danson, and Christine Lottie. And I was not in that part. In that part, I was playing like young. But from the time I was 18 to 21, I was playing (laughs) 14-year-olds because I'm very short and I looked young. And one of the reasons I actually left was because I think everybody thought I was just like a kid and I just could not feel respected in that part of the business. You know, I was treated kind of like a chair in a lot of ways. And it was like, tell that person over there to go over here. And it really annoyed me. And I was too old. You know, I was 21 and thinking to myself, I don't need this. I'm graduating from UCLA. I don't need this. But that is what I did. So I did a lot of, you know, I wanted to be in the business no matter what it was. And at the beginning, I wanted to do acting. So Mm. that's something about me that I do not put on my resume. (laughs) What was the name of the movie? Oh, it was called Just Between Friends. And I had a small part at the very end. I played a candy striper. And um, I had auditioned for something else because I actually, the director was Alan Burns, who directed tons and created Mary Tyler Moore, the show. Mm. And I had worked for him on the lot. I was on the MTM lot. And so he had me audition, but I knew I wouldn't get the part because it was a major part. But um, he contacted me and said, look, I'd like to give you a part anyway. So he did. And then they Taft hartley me on the set, which means they take, I was an extra. So they come to you and they give you a line Uh and they put you like front and center. So I was pushing um, Christine Lottie in a wheelchair and Mary Tyler Moore was next to me. And they give you a line so you can, you know, upgrade. But I never joined SAG because that was like sort of the end when I was like, I'm done with this. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: that's hilarious. I bet you still know the line too.
1: Oh, I do, but I'm not going to say. It. <laughs> At the time, it was the whole Valley Girl thing, so they said oh. to have to say it like a Valley Girl, which was like, "Oh my god, that's hilarious."
0: I actually spent um, four years in the San Fernando Valley, formative oh. years, and I used to do the Moon Unit Zappa Valley Girl talk. Uh, my mom would like, say, "Totally, yes, exactly." <laughs> and she, my mom would say, "Sarah, do
1: your valley girl." <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like,
0: oh, I hate that.
1: <laughs> so I can I know. totally it hear was, that. Oh my gosh, it was really embarrassing. So I usually didn't tell anybody. But my father, somehow, I don't even know how, because I wasn't invited to the premiere. But my father somehow, because of his business or whatever, he got me, he took me to one of the premieres. So to sit there with my father and watch my name go across the screen, that was the best part.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yes, I hear you. There are some things in our past that should just stay there. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. My kids have never seen it. (laughs) (laughs) But they are formative. I mean, those kinds of experiences, I can imagine standing next to those Hall of Famers, Especially mm-hmm. Mary Tyler Moore, but Christine, I loved her. In so oh, long. I
1: loved Christine. She was a doll. She was really nice. Do you remember
0: anything of that experience that really um, struck you as either, I don't know, the the holy shit, what a horrible world these people are in, or or <laughs> wow, this is so great. Like, what was? What was the moment for you? I
1: think the moment, what it really struck me was, okay, this is when I realized I, I loved, I grew up just wanting to be on a lot. And I used to sneak up to Universal because you used to before 9-11, you could go up into a bank and come down the other side and you'd end up at Universal Studios. And when <laughs> I was young, my friends and I would take the bus, we'd dress up like nobody would know we were like 14, 15. And we would walk around Universal like we were supposed to be there And like we were really important and nobody ever questioned anything and so i was just really nuts about studios and i think i thought it was glamorous i think at that point we were working in a um, very bad neighborhood in a hospital so it wasn't glamorous at all there was no glamour to it and we had to keep doing it over and over again shooting it and i think i realized you know what this isn't what i really thought it was even though to this day, if I drive by a studio, I still get butterflies. And when I go onto a studio lot, it still makes me happy, even, even though I'm not on it anymore as a you know working person, but I still love studios. But that is what it taught me is that this really is a job. I mean, and people think, oh, you know, they're treated this certain way. But you know, most of the time they were standing there too. Um, they did have stand-ins. I didn't, but they did. But they still seemed like they were just working. Right, isn't it funny the way the
0: glamour doesn't sparkle so much when you're in the middle of it? Exactly,
1: exactly. Huh. It's very different.
0: So, what was a moment, um, like a specific time? You, you mentioned that it was not in a great neighborhood. Right. Were you walking, like, from a parking spot, or can you imagine something you saw in that neighborhood, heading into the hospital or in the hospital?
1: Do you have a vision of that somewhere? Yeah, because. I mean, it's really not that different from it is today. I mean, you didn't see homeless people everywhere, but you did see, you know, a lot of poor neighborhoods as you drove through, because it was in downtown LA and it was in Boyle Heights, which is an area of downtown LA that is not very, um, you know, that doesn't have a lot of money. And it, it was just, it just seemed like the businesses and everything else. It was, it was a different vision and being 21 and you know I lived in the valley and I and I had a fairly sheltered life. I didn't go downtown very often. I went to UCLA, which is in a you know, decent neighborhood. And so I really didn't see a lot of that. And I think that was probably a very eye-opening experience for me in that way too. And we had a lot of security around, which also alerts right. you to see that much security and people watching you walk from your car. I mean, we did park at the hospital. It was a hospital that wasn't being used anymore. Mm-hmm. So um, we did park there, but there was a lot of security around. And so I felt safe, but right. you really noticed the neighborhood.
0: Well, that's what I was imagining was um, I could kind of see this in your expressions. And the way that you told the story was that you had this vision of being there and, and what I'm hearing, what I'm picking up now is from the parking lot in particular and seeing all the security around and the security guards kind of watching you to make sure you got inside safely or got back out to your car safely. Right. That's a vision. I mean I, I remember three weeks after nine eleven, 11 I flew from Montana to National Airport, Reagan National oh, wow. Airport in DC three weeks after and I had um, a nearly three-year-old with me and like a six-month-old baby and I remember going through security in DC you know Montana hadn't changed as much it still hasn't changed that much but flying into DC and I had just left there about four years before when we moved away so I still had this vision of what DC was like yeah. I remember getting off the plane and going through security and it looked like how I imagined Tel Aviv or Jerusalem mm-hmm. with these um, a very strong military presence, not just police, but military presence with berets and Uzis, you know, carrying yeah. their weapons there. And I remember feeling like this distinct shift in how I saw the world.
1: I totally agree I flew into New York the Christmas after that September mm-hmm. and I it was the same thing there were dogs everywhere and the military and you did feel like you were in a completely other country and it, mm-hmm. it did make you think oh wow this I mean we all knew it was real because we watched it and we grieved with the people but it really is real when you're in the airport and you see all of this presence
0: right the long-term impact of what had happened it wasn't just you know just a thing and then it ended it's like you know decades later we're still recovering from that if if there's any such thing as recovery from something like that exactly. and for me it was also like oh this is how other people live this is common yeah. because i was imagining i've never been to jerusalem or tel aviv but i was imagining yeah. this is what it looked like and um it it was interesting i just have to bring this up because it was so different this juxtaposition of experiences um, my family flew into Paris exactly a week after the the stadium bombings a few years back oh, okay. and the Botoclon murders at that at that theater. And when we were there, there was a distinct presence, but it didn't feel overwhelming or in your face. It didn't feel scary. I mean, it just, it, I actually, like you in the parking lot, I felt safe, yeah. but they weren't, I don't know, they were, I guess they were more subtle than what I was Expecting because of my experience flying into DC that time.
1: Right. Because right. we're not used to that as Americans. Right. We weren't. Now we're a little bit more used to it, but we weren't used to that. And when you fly to those other countries, my son has been to Israel and he said, you just sort of get used to it. It's like you don't really think about the Israeli police that are all standing around with guns and looking. And, you know, he didn't really think about it. Right.
0: Well, let's move on to a topic that is a little lighter. (laughs) Although it's not like your book has a whole lot of light topics either. (laughs) Kind of got
1: both, I guess. Yeah, yeah.
0: it definitely has some humor, which I loved because I I can't read something that doesn't break something up into some humor. Um, And as I mentioned before we hit record, what I loved about the book was how relatable it was, you know, there were parts of it that really resonated. So for our listeners, after Happily Ever After, is really that story of transition from a very specific perspective of, um, well, a few specific perspectives, because you bring in the other characters from a first person. Mm
1: -hmm. But
0: basically, it's this transition time when uh, um, parents are seeing their child or children hitting that age where they're about to leave the house. They're just kind of empty nesting and they're also caring for aging parents. They call that the sandwich generation. Um, and there was definitely some humor in it. I would love for you to, you when we talked before we are doing this recording session, you mentioned the why behind this book that you were going to read, you were going to write a nonfiction. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that, please?
1: Sure. I had been around a lot of moms. I um, My kids were, you know, when they were in school, the moms would talk and I had been a comedy television writer and I loved it. And I stopped when my kids were born because I really wanted to raise my kids and those hours are terrible. So while I was raising my kids, you know, I was just talking to women and we'd have, you know, a whole bunch of talks about how, you know, they had given up their jobs, a lot of these women, and they also were thinking, what if I can't get back in? What am I going to do when my kids become independent? I'm not really sure. And so I thought about it for a while. And then I wrote up a survey. And I put it online anonymously. And I also sent it to everybody I know. And I put it on social media. And the survey was, it was targeted at women to talk about their relationships, their um, sex lives, their, uh, jealousy in their relationships, their conflict, how they handle conflict, how they handle money. There was a whole bunch of questions and I started to get them all back. And I was going to write a nonfiction book from all these women, you know, stories. And when I started to read them, I realized so many of these stories were relatable to each other. They, all these people had so many things in common, especially in long-term marriages. So because my background, was in fiction, I decided to write fiction and I, was also at that point where, um, when I started this, my kids were in high school, but I mean, they were getting more independent. I, um, I had a job, I was a nutritionist for 10 years after I stopped writing television, I went back, got a master's, I was a nutritionist, but I missed the writing. So I decided to close my business and start back into a book. And I, first of all, I didn't want to do anything with teenage boys because my sons would have killed me. So it was much better to use a daughter. And since I was a daughter, I knew a lot about that too. So I decided to write a book from the standpoint of a woman who's trying to rediscover herself after giving up the job she loved for her, you know, to stay home with her kids. And she also has these two parents who are aging. And I also, my father passed away four years ago, but I also had aging parents. My father did not have the same issues that the father has in the book, but he had a lot of medical issues and my mom was his caregiver. So there were a lot of things in there that I took ideas from my life and from other people's lives, but I didn't take my life. And, um, and so that's why I wrote the book. Well, I
0: I hear all of that in after having read the the book itself. Um, and one of the things that I, I mentioned this before we hit record, one of the things that bothered me was this attitude of the daughter, the teenage daughter that, you know, mom's just going to do everything for me. And she's so she has no gratitude and no grace. And you said, well, that's because the mom was such a nurturer. That was her job was to do things for her daughter, as far yes. as she was concerned. Because she shifted, now that I think about it, she shifted her um, her purpose, the meaning in her life, from working and publishing to her raising this daughter and, and making sure her husband was cared for. And so she took on this role of of caregiver so
1: dramatically, so intensely. Yes, it made her feel very needed. And because she didn't have the job to go to, this became what she considered her job. And her job to her was to take care of everybody's needs in the family. And as time goes on and she gets overwhelmed by everything else in her life, because before that she could kind of handle it. And she starts to see her daughter pull away because her daughter's 17. She's starting to get independent. And she realizes, well, wait, I'm nurturing everybody. Who is nurturing me? Mm -hmm. And I think... That's a really interesting topic for moms, especially, but for all women. And I realized I, I did it way earlier than Maggie did it. But I got to a point where I realized I was doing too much for my kids, but they were much younger. And so, you know, it was like, oh, I'm going to teach you how to cook or I'm going to you're going to cook with me or I'm going to teach you how to do laundry and you're going to start right. doing your own laundry. And my kids were incredibly grateful and they were I have heard, and I, I'm not going to say this for sure, and I'm not going to generalize, but I've heard from parents with teenage daughters sometimes that they're a little bit more um, uh, dramatic or they they take things out on the mom more. There's a very different relationship there. And with my sons, they never took anything out, out on me, but they did need to learn how to do a lot on their own. And I, when I went back for my master's, I realized, oh, I can't do everything for everybody. I have to be available for myself too. Right. But a lot of moms do. I talked to so many moms who actually, their kids would bring all their laundry home from college every single week. (laughs) And they would would do their kids' laundry. And I thought, I am not going to be that mom. There is no way my kids are going to do that. And when they do, my son now lives in an apartment. So when he does bring his laundry, because he doesn't feel like going downstairs to do it, he doesn't, I don't touch it. (laughs) but but I would not do his laundry. So it's things like that.
0: So hopefully it's also, you know, for those of us that um, it resonates with because of our own lives that have some similarities, but hopefully it will also be kind of a, um, a learning opportunity for women who are in a place where they can start this now Mm -hmm. where their kids aren't 17 and already in this weird place where they can't cook for themselves. And they, expect you to do everything for them. So I, I hope that this is a lesson for people who read it, both parents, in, in a few different ways. One is, I'm with you. Like, uh, there's no way I would do everything for my kids. And I have two boys, so I get that. Mm-hmm. And I agree. My nieces are very different from our boys. Yes. And there, I was um, hiking one day and ran into a couple of young girls, young young women. They were 21. And they went to the same school as my son, University of Montana, Missoula. Mm. And I said, so I hear that there's a lot of helicopter parenting, even in college. Yes. Is that like a real thing? And these, these young women are from a little town way out in eastern Montana, and they do everything themselves. These are ranch kids. Um, one of them is actually, she was raised partly on the Indian reservation, which, oh. you know, she was really self-sufficient. Um, Uh, what's the word? Yeah, self-sufficient and um, just super independent. And they said, oh my gosh, Sarah, you wouldn't even believe it. There are times where we would go down into the laundry room, which is free at the university, go to the laundry room in the dorm and there would be people's mothers there (gasps) doing (gasps) their kids' laundry. I was like, oh my God. I thought it was bad enough. Holy shit.
1: That's really bad.
0: No, Hmm. totally over the top. So that's one lesson that I would hope that parents, when they read your book or hear this conversation, they understand that you're not doing them any favors when you do that. You're just you're not. not. And um, and you're not doing yourself any favors because then you're at that point where Maggie is, where she suddenly realizes that she has no life outside of what she does for others. Right. And, and she
1: realizes that she is not taking care of herself, really. Exactly. Or her own needs in any way. And I think the
0: other lesson here that is so critical that I was reading in and remembering situations in my own marriage, that you have to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Like she just let this thing fester and fester. And she kept thinking she was talking to him, but she wasn't.
1: Well, that's the thing. It's like, they really do have a great marriage. I mean, they, they do love each other. You can see that there's banter between them, but she just gets to a point where she thinks she's bringing it up. And he, she's not pushing it hard enough because he's sort of being vague and doesn't want to deal with it. And instead of going to him and saying, hey, we need to sit down and we need to actually have this conversation and figure out what the heck is going on with you, she just sort of lets it slide because she's also got other stuff going on and she just doesn't really hit it head on. Right. Right. So when you think about that
0: aspect of the book, is there... A, an experience in your own life that you could relate that to, like when you did choose to, to take that moment and say, look, we, this is not working. We have to talk about this and something's got to change. This is a deal breaker.
1: It wasn't as much with my husband, because we are very, very communicative. But when I was a lot younger, I was not. And I wouldn't tell people like, you know, I mean, even nicely, like, you know what, that really hurt my feelings or that really bothered me. I didn't approach things head to head. And honestly, I went into therapy a long time ago and, and it really taught me that I have a voice, that it's okay for me to say what I, I was sort of the, everything's fine. I'm going to be the you know middle daughter that doesn't cause any problems. And, you know, that's not necessarily healthy. And so I really learned how to get my voice. And it took me, you know, a little bit of time. But once I had my voice, by the time I married my husband, I was pretty much into that process. And he's super communicative. So I no longer, I don't have any problem going to him and saying, you know what, we got to talk about this, this or this. And I don't like confrontation. But now I figure out okay, it doesn't have to be confronting somebody. It can be just, here's how I feel. Here's what I'm going to tell you. And it, it can be said in a way that you try not to make the other person defensive. And, mm-hmm. but you still say what you want to say. So I think that that whole thing with Maggie also came from my background of just not having a voice and not feeling like, to me, Maggie doesn't feel like she's number one. She feels like, she, her, she knows Jim loves her, but she feels like he is, you know, work is number one and the, her and the kids, you know, are like down there too, but she doesn't feel like he has made her a priority in the last, however, this has been about six months. I mean, right. six months before things were fine. This is basically a six month period where he's kind of pulled away and been disconnected. And I think she doesn't have a voice. And I think it takes her to... A while through the book to figure out her right. voice. You know, and, I have and to sabotage.
0: Out to it. it takes exactly. her some self sabotage before she realizes that that's yes. what's going and on. She
1: realizes, wait a minute, I can try to work on things with my voice. I can say this is what I need. This is what I have to figure out about myself, and I'm going to go do that. Mm-hmm. Which so, she
0: does in the end, and I loved the ending. Okay. Oh my god! Okay. I was. Okay. I was a little concerned that it was going to go, you know, the the Hollywood ending. And Absolutely. it really didn't. No, no, I wasn't knowing I your background,
1: hopefully, but at the same time where Maggie is stronger and has her voice. But I didn't want to tie things up in a bow because, again, I wrote this book to be realistic and for people to relate to it. And I think sometimes and I know there's people out there that said to me, oh, it didn't get tied up in a little bow. And I like that. I know like romance does that. I didn't want it to be like that. I wanted people to still be thinking after the end.
0: Yes. And it did do that. So I I know a time when I used my voice, like I could give you probably three specific examples where I finally went, oh, I have to say something right now and did it in a way that was um, approaching the behavior And not insulting the person right what was one of yours early on obviously before you got married or maybe it was because i continue to have these experiences because it's still tempting it's always tempting to just take that step back and go "Eh, i don't really have to deal with this it'll go away it'll blow over so tell me about a time that that happened with you because i think it's an important um intersection between you and maggie
1: Yeah, um, I would say one of the times, and this is actually not that long ago, (laughs) I used my voice was with a good friend and she came to me and in the way she spoke to me, um, it was very insulting and very hurtful. And I knew, I knew that she was going through a lot So I knew that there was something behind it. And I'm one of those people that can be empathetic and think like, okay, you know what, I'll let her off the hook, but I couldn't let her off the hook for the way she spoke to me. And so I just, I said to her, you know what? I said, I understand what you're saying. And I'm sorry that you got hurt from this misunderstanding. But what you said to me really hurt. I don't think any of that's true. We've had 20 years and you've never said any of this to me before. So obviously, because she threw out the always, you're always this, you know, one of those. Oh, oh said, wouldn't that's have the worst. A- no. I said, we wouldn't have had a wonderful friendship for 20 years if that was really true. So you obviously didn't think that. And, you know, I just told her it really, really hurt me. And I tried to be, I didn't say anything against her or anything like that, like you just said. But I did say, this is how I feel. And I and I feel like I do that now. Not. I mean, I don't have any issues with other friends, so it's not like it's a regular basis. But I do feel like if my husband says something and I interpret it a different way, then I will absolutely say to him, well, what did you actually mean by that? Because that really bothered me. So, and that's something I wouldn't have done like years ago. There's no way I would have just let it go. And I would have been like, oh, it really bothered me. And I'm upset or I'm angry. And I just would have tried to get over it.
0: Uh-huh. I, and I I think that is so common, men and women. That's not just a woman thing. Yes. Um, and I know I recently had to say something like, you know, that was that was not very nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you didn't have to say it that way. You could have, yeah. you know, just acknowledged that it, wasn't the right thing to do and let it go. But um, the way you presented to me
1: like that was not very nice. And I'm and, also and really not helpful. Exactly. Not helpful. And I'm also really good about if I say something to one of my kids, I never mean I never say anything against them. But if I say something that bothers them, and they tell me, "I'm very good at apologizing and saying, "Oh, I'm so sorry that came out wrong. you know I, I didn't mean mm-hmm. it that way. What I meant was this. I still meant the idea behind it, but I didn't mean the maybe the way you heard it or the way I said it. I will mm-hmm. acknowledge that too. I'm very good about that.
0: Well, I think that that's the part that's missing in so many situations is um, we start to develop our voices as women. I think um, it's not uncommon for that to happen at around forty for us just yeah. to, to start to really." use our voices in a way that is productive and, and, and yet we still, I think it's not uncommon for us to say the wrong thing when we are approaching that conflict um, because we're not practiced in it. And so we forget that we also have to acknowledge our role in it and exactly. when we need to apologize. Sometimes it's just so innate that we just are upset about something and we, we don't really realize that we contributed somehow.
1: Exactly. And especially with kids. I mean, I always felt like with my kids, I always went away and thought about whatever happened and thought, okay, I could have handled that differently. So I would always go back and say, look, I'm sorry the way I handled it, but you know, you got to clean your room or whatever it is, you know, you get frustrated at times and it's like, Oh my God. And you do find you're always doing this or whatever. And I do think it's important to go in and say, look, I'm really sorry. Mm -hmm.
0: And do you think it's, um, The way that you present that is actually good for your kids to see that even when it starts wrong?
1: Yes, I do, because I think your kids can see, Okay, you know, you said something or did something or whatever that that bothered them. But you're not just their mom. So you get away with it, because I think sometimes, you know, especially years ago, your parents would do something or say something. I don't remember. My parents really coming to me and apologizing, not that anything major happened in my childhood, but when it did, I do not remember my parents ever saying, sitting me down and saying, look, I'm really, really sorry that I said or did or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what raises a bunch of people that, that Then their moms or dads. And they're like, well, it's my word of the highway, you know, right. and that's not really good because at a certain age, your kids, you have to tell them what to do. I mean, they're little, they don't know, and you have to help right. teach them, but at a certain age, your kids should know what's right and what's wrong. And you aren't, you know, the only person who can tell them that. So right.
0: I was thinking in terms of modeling acknowledgement when we're wrong, because I agree, um, my parents' generation, my husband's parents, they never apologized to their kids, even, even when they absolutely knew they handled something oh, badly, yeah. they <laughs> wouldn't, and there was that whole um, cultural identification as a parent, as a person in authority, that if I say I'm sorry, then they won't respect me anymore. Right, it makes you weak, and it does right. Right, and I could see that back then. I could see why they thought that that might be the case. It's just like they wouldn't compliment you because they're afraid your ego would get too big, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is so ridiculous. And then we went the completely opposite direction where we have to compliment everything they do, and then they don't know anything about exactly. what's right or wrong, exactly, or what they're actually good at. So I think about it in terms of modeling, and I I do that with my kids all the time. Um, you know, I, I actually ask them to give me a heads up when I say something that sounds like it came out of my mother's mouth. And I'm like, okay. And, and we, we all adore my mom. So it's not like that, but there are some things that I've said to them. I don't want to be like that. That's not me. That doesn't align with who I am. So I need you to give me a heads up when I head in that direction. Cause I don't want to be there because I know how I feel about it now as an adult. Right. And um, like guilt, I will not put guilt or obligation on my kids And, um, and I think by apologizing, we are putting ourselves in a position of a longer, healthier relationship with our children, because then they know they can apologize when they hurt our feelings.
1: Exactly. And my kids are good at that. They know. If I say you hurt my feelings, they, they, the only thing about my kids is sometimes they go on the opposite, like crazy, like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Oh, and I'm like, it's not the end of the world. (laughs) You know? (laughs) know. But they feel so bad. And I'm like, oh my God. Like that makes it
0: <laughs> I have not experienced that yet, but maybe, maybe in the future I will. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. That's hilarious. Yeah. So tell me when you think about the characters in your book. I, I know that you love all of them because you can't write a book like that and not have some yeah. um, connection and attachment to each one. But which of the characters when you think about um is the one that you feel like would be your friend, and which is the one that you absolutely
1: love but don't like very much? Oh, interesting. Well, I love Maggie. I like listening to Maggie say all her crazy stuff out loud to her, you know, herself and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think I would be friends with her best friend, Ellen. There's something mm-hmm. about Ellen that I just love. She's adoring, but she also like sort of treats Maggie like they're the same person. She just walks in her house and puts her feet up. And I love that aspect of their relationship. Mm -hmm. So I'd probably be friends with her. Um, I don't, the person I don't like that I loved writing for, but I didn't like was the mom because she just, doesn't see what she says as being a big deal to Maggie. And she's part of the reason that Maggie doesn't have as much self-confidence because Mm -hmm. of the things she says to her. Um, But I love Maggie and her father's relationship. That's really important to me because that relationship was, I had an amazing relationship with my father. I also have one with my mother um, and we're very close, but my father passed away and, and, That character, I think I made even more like my father after he passed away before the first draft. And I know he would have loved reading this book, but I think I went back in the other other drafts later and sort of added a little bit more about who he is that kind of tends towards my father and the relationship between them. Because that's my favorite part of the whole book for me, because it's just a personal thing. And I dedicated the book to my father. Um, because it's just very special to me. And I wish he got to read it. Um, I'm sorry that he didn't, because I just think he would have liked it. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, we're in the same boat. Uh, My book was published in 2020. My father passed away in 2014. So he's nowhere near it. He didn't even know I was writing one. (laughs) I guess I I wasn't back then. Um, (laughs) So I hear you. And that um, I think writing about them, writing them into the character um, brings them closer to you again. And I'm a big believer in celebrating grief. I know that sounds strange, but I've been doing this for a few years now where I celebrate when I'm grieving my father, because it means that we are still connected. Because once, once the grief kind of fades, which I don't, I don't plan to do, I don't plan to allow my grief to fade for my dad. Um, I think you kind of lose you lose the memory of them, you lose them again, when the grief goes away. So I just as an example, I had a dream about my father a few weeks ago, right? But well, it was April when when um, right around my birthday. And I remember waking up sobbing, like sobbing, the heart wrenching, <laughs> kind of sobbing and my pillow was wet. So I had been crying in my sleep. Mm. Yeah, which is that's really unusual. I'm not a particularly sentimental person. I don't cry a lot. It's just not something that is part of who I am. Um, And yet here I woke up like that. And I remember that deep uh, wait for the whole next day. I had a hard time getting out of it. Finally got out on a walk that afternoon or evening and started processing the dream and all of a sudden, I was filled with gratitude for that heart-wrenching dream. Thank goodness I had that heart-wrenching dream because it brought him back to me again. And um, so I think your book and losing, losing an aspect of her father, and I won't give away the ending, right. um, definitely contributes to that sense of connection that your readers will have
1: Yeah, that that was even now when I go back and I'm looking for the book, every time I read a line from the father, it just, it does, it brings me back. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's little snippets in the book of things from my childhood with my dad or with my mom. And that stuff I put in because, like I said, I wanted the book to be realistic and relate. And I felt like I could write better if there was little tiny things in there from me. So, I mean, the story is not mm-hmm. mine, you know, and that other stuff. And there's so many differences, but just the idea, if I put in something from that, my dad and I said, or did together, it just made me feel better and, and more, I, connected. Exactly. Right. more and- connected to the character and to Maggie's relationship. I felt like I could deal, I could figure out that relationship really well by knowing what my relationship was with my father.
0: Well, it's interesting you say that because that was a big part of my conversation with Suzanne Simonetti in her book, The Sound Mm -hmm. of Wings, was that when we embody and embrace these characters, that it makes them more real for our readers as much as it does for us.
1: Exactly.
0: So to wrap up, I just have one more question for you Mm because of this, something triggered this idea when you said something about the mom not being your favorite character, where for me, it was the daughter. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. hell no. A little girl. <laughs> There's no way. Um, but what I'd like to hear from you, like to, to wrap this up, is where was a part of the book with the mother that you um, that you understood her humanity, where you had that moment as you're writing it or as you're rereading it through the drafts, that you realize the mother's humanity and you suddenly feel that connection to her because I know you do because i read the book and I know that character.
1: Um, I would say when Maggie comes into her father's room and her mother is shaving, she's just standing off. They don't know she's there. And the mother is intimately shaving, you know, his face and they're talking and she's just, she, she says she feels like she walked in on them having sex. Cause it's such an intimate moment between the two of them. And. For me, that's when Maggie, that's one of the times Maggie really sees her mom and says, wow, you know, she's a really loving, caring person. And um, and so for me to write that, I really needed to, because the mother's not a bad person. She's kind of narcissistic and she's kind of, you know, not really thinking mm-hmm. probably has ADD, but she really does have a human side because she's also, when she's with her granddaughter, she's a very loving grandmother. And Maggie witnesses that, and that's hard for Maggie because she didn't feel that from her mother. But in that scene, when she's shaving the father, mm. to me was the scene that where I was like, "Oh, that's really, you know, showing something." She's very gentle, and she's always great with him too, with the father. Right,
0: right. I could see that. Was there any part of that that you recognized part of your relationship with your mother in it as well? With my mother. Obviously that character is not your mother, but there are aspects of it.
1: The caregiver part. Definitely. I mean, my mom, I mean, she did used to shave my dad. I think that's where it came into my head and she would really, my dad was in a wheelchair and they had no help. So my mom like did everything and she had this lift and she would pick him up. And my mom was in her, you know, she was not young. This was four years ago. My mom's 80, almost 85. So she was 80 doing all this stuff. And I mean, Oh, I can't tell you the things she did for him. I mean, it was just amazing. So I think that that aspect, I think when I wrote that, I I didn't think about it at the time, but after it was over, I had this very strange feeling about that scene. And I think it was because I knew that my mom did that, all those things for him. Mm -hmm. So even if you hadn't seen it, you knew it, you felt it. I think I knew it subconsciously when I wrote it, That I, that, when I wrote that was shaving, I knew that she used to do all of that for him. Mm. And it was just amazing. It was just amazing. So that part, yeah, definitely. That's beautiful.
0: That is just beautiful. I, I think about those relationships. Um, in the book, when I think about the book, I think about the relationships more than I think of any of the characters specifically, I think about their relationships. Yeah. And, and that's the key, I think, to
1: any satisfying life is looking at your relationships. That's the most important thing, really, because like, like they say, mm-hmm. when you when you pass away, what do you say? You don't say, oh, I wish I worked harder on such and such.
0: <laughs> right. you know, you
1: say, I'm really wish glad I had more money. <laughs> Usually say, I'm glad that my kids and my family are here mm-hmm. or with me. Yeah. Yeah. Or I wish I had spent more time with my
0: friends. That was in that um, book, the, the five top wishes of the dying. Mm I wish I spent more time with my friends.
1: That's the one thing I do do. I do make sure Mm -hmm. like no matter what happens, and I have done that my whole life is that I was never one of those girls that like found a boyfriend and dropped all her friends. I didn't like people like that. And I always maintained my close friends and Mm -hmm. I still do. Excellent.
0: Yes. And yet another lesson from Leslie Rasmussen. (laughs) Do not leave your girlfriends behind because you're
1: going to need them. You're always always going to need them. They're the people that will be there for you if, you know, your husband does something or your kids do something or your parents do something. You do something. (laughs) It's okay. You're fine. It's okay. Even if you know it's not okay. Your friends will always tell you you'll be fine. (laughs) <laughs>
0: yes. And they'll, they'll tell you when you're pulling shit. <laughs> and, and they and, do. And they'll,
1: they'll say, yeah. you know what, you're wrong in this conversation. You're wrong about, you know, whatever happened with you and your husband, you're wrong. <laughs> you know?
0: Right. Right. My yeah. sister and I used to call them angry married stories. We'd call up and, you know, would complain about something our husbands did. And sometimes it was, oh, Sarah, you're totally overreacting here. That was not, that was not what he meant. And I actually love when they do that.
1: There. Because it's like, it doesn't right. make sense that it actually helps because I'm like, really? I'm overreacting. Oh, that's so good because I can change my behavior. I can't change his. So I can, exactly. I'm overreacting, but I'm like, okay, good. And then I can, <laughs> it's much right.
0: Easier. <laughs> and then there's the opposite where it was, oh no, that's not, that's not right. You have to
1: use exactly. your words. Exactly. Exactly. That's Which is words. great either way. But yes, friends are so important. Absolutely. Leslie, thank you so much for spending
0: time with me today. I oh, so appreciate thank you for it. having me. I loved being here. Thank you. Absolutely. And could you just um, share the information about reaching you and the book and any yeah. contact information? And for our listeners, just so you know, I will have links to all of this in the blog post associated with this podcast at ElkinsConsulting.com.
1: But for those of you who want to hear it right now, Leslie. So the book is called After Happily Ever After. It's um, at Amazon and anywhere you can get it anywhere books are sold. I am on Facebook at After Happily Ever After Novel. I am on Twitter at Leslie R. Author. And I am on Instagram at Leslie R. Author. And my website is Leslie A. Rasmussen.com. And I'm available for book clubs. I love doing book clubs. I've done them all the time. I zoom in if they're not in my my area. So that's me. Excellent.
0: Thank you so much. And yes, I can imagine this would make a great book club book. I mean, that's been especially, really especially with a diverse range of ages and places in life. So if you have women and men who are younger parents, parents of younger children, people who are experiencing the elder care mm-hmm. um, experience, it would be a great conversation for people to have to dig a little deeper into their own experience with very similar circumstances. Exactly. Thank you again, Leslie. Thank you. Are you ready to start your story portfolio so you have the right story ready to share when the opportunity presents itself? When you're ready to get started, my book, Your Stories Don't Define You How You Tell Them Will, is available in all the regular places, and the audiobook version is available on Google Play and on my website, elkinsconsulting.com. As a special bonus for listeners, the audiobook includes two songs recorded by my band, Spare Change, in my living room in Montana. Also, on my website is a free podcast interview checklist. It's available to download to make sure you make the most out of your next podcast interview. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to rate the podcast and leave a review and let me know that you've done it so I can thank you properly. Thank you.